0: All right, boys and girls, I guess we need to get started. Uh, For lack of a better place, you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Good to see all of you this evening. Appreciate you coming out to the Tuesday evening Bible study. And uh, we are considering the wonderful... Subject of the grace of God, and I'll explain where we are in just a moment, let's seek the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your sovereign grace and mercy that you have revealed to us in your Son. Thank you, Lord, for all of the light you've given to us through your word. Pray tonight that you will enlighten our minds, that we might have a greater appreciation of your grace as we study the righteousness of God in Christ. We pray for those not able to be with us who are sick, some have been afflicted. We thank you for Brother Benny and Teresa, that they are much, much better and can be with us this evening. We ask your blessings on our study and our gathering together for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his honor, for his glory. We ask it in his name. Amen. All right, now this is the second uh, uh, study. I have five studies planned uh, on the grace of God. And I'm going to I ask Ken to put some words up on the board. You don't have to remember the words, but I want to give you an idea about the background and the full meaning of our English word grace. Now, you see those three words up there? That first word is pronounced, you pronounce that C like a K. It's kin, kin, and that is a Hebrew word that means favor, and it means acceptance, That second word is harish, really. We say kairos all the time. It's harish, and that's a Greek term. And that word basically means goodwill and a loving kindness. And then the third word is pronounced kesed, and that's a word that's generally translated loving kindness. So those three words equal kind of our understanding of what we mean when we, say, when we say grace of God. The first word, ken, means favor and acceptance. The second word, harish, means goodwill and loving kindness. And the third word, chesed, means loving kindness. Now David used that word quite a bit. For example, in Psalm seventeen, verse seven, he said, Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Psalm seventeen, seven. He, he uses the word cassid there, that third word, the bottom word. Psalm twenty five, verse six, remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses for they have been ever of old. Psalm 26, verse 3, Thy loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. And finally, his psalm of confession, Psalm 51, is generally thought as being a psalm of confession by David after he had had the husband Bathsheba destroyed in battle, Uriah. And uh, he confesses to God in Psalm 51. And in verse 1, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Now, every time you see the word loving kindness, you can write in your Bible grace, because that is a Hebrew word that's pretty much equivalent to our understanding of. Uh, of the grace of God. Now, I know all of you have eaten a meal in a restaurant from time to time, and usually when you eat your meal, you leave what we call, in the common vernacular, a tip. <laughs> now, I have a little joke among the members of Grace Church. Uh, when we go out to eat, I say, okay, I'll get the tip and you get the gratuity. And they look at me real funny, and I said, well, what's the difference? And I said, well, a tip is something like buy low and sell high, but gratuity involves money. <laughs> so you leave the money, and I'll and give them the tip. Well, when you tip the server after you've had a meal, that is in addition to the cost of the meal, you're leaving that money specifically for the server, as an expression of your thankfulness for their good service, unless you have a bad waiter. My wife, Lynn, had a cousin that used to have a card, and if he got bad service, you know, if he went into a restaurant and they acted like they were doing him a favor to wait on him, some of you might have had waiters and waitresses like that, he had this little card And he put a penny under it, and when you turn the card up, read it, it said your service wasn't worth two cents. (laughs) But most of the time, we try to be a little bit more kind than that, and we leave something for the waiter or the waitress, the server, to let them know that we appreciate their service. Now, we call this gesture a gratuity, And the word gratuity, now we're going to put some more words up on the board for you, can be traced back to a Latin word, gratuitus. See that word at the bottom? Gratuitus. And that's a word that just basically means, it means gift. And that is the very basic, most basic idea behind grace. In other words, the word gratuity uh, and the word grace have the same root When it's employed in a biblical way, the tip after the meal, you have to have these conditions for a tip to be a gratuity. When you leave a tip after the meal, if it's really, in fact, a gratuity, it must be given freely. It cannot be given out of duty. It cannot be demanded. And it cannot be deserved By the recipient. Now, any restaurant which automatically, and you've all been there, any restaurant which automatically adds a so called gratuity to the meal is really charging more for the meal in order to get you to help them pay the server. It's not a gratuity. A gratuity is not demanded and it's not expected. And if it is demanded and expected, if you eat in a restaurant where they have on the menu a 20% tip will be added, that's not a gratuity. It might be, a, it might be called a gratuity, but it's not. Because the gratuity must be free, unexpected, and uh, given absolutely with no strings attached for no reason other than you want to leave a gift. So in like manner, grace that must be given, or that is deserved, is not grace. It's works disguised as grace. And Paul makes this clear. I'm just going to quote this to you in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, when he talks to us about the remnant in Israel who will be saved. And he says, even so, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And then he says this, if it's by grace then it is no more by works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it's works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What is he saying? He's saying you cannot mix grace and works. You're either saved by grace or you're saved by works. Grace and works are like oil and water. You can stir them up, but as soon as you quit stirring, they separate again. Grace and works can't be mixed. Oil and water can't be mixed. And today, of course, in our frail society, we're trying to mix up the, the, the sexes. We're trying to make males and females into something else. And those whom God hath joined together are joined together, but those whom God hath separated should be stay, stay separated. And uh, male and female, males are males and females are females, and never the twain shall meet. But we're confusing things today. Well, one of the purposes that I have in these five studies is to help us better understand and appreciate the grace of God by discovering its foundation. What does the grace of God rest upon? What is it built upon? I have suggested a five-fold foundation which I hope is, uh, will help us, aid us in our biblical understanding of grace. So I'm, I've used the word grace, G-R-A-C-E, the English word grace, acrostically, and I've erected a doctrinal foundation uh, upon that word grace. Grace is goodness, righteousness, atonement, covenant, and election. G in grace is goodness, R is righteousness, A is atonement, C is covenant, and E is election. The grace of God is built upon those five grand pillars. Now, if we have some understanding of these components of grace, we'll have a greater appreciation of our salvation, and we'll have a greater and more glorious reverence and respect for the Almighty God of grace. So tonight in our study, having considered goodness last week, we're going to consider the R in grace, which is righteousness. Now just a brief review. The grace of God, we learned last week, begins with the goodness of God. Adam and Eve were not destroyed, were not wiped out, were not consigned to hell because of the goodness of God expressed through grace toward them. Then later in history when the intents and the hearts of men were fully set in them to do evil, always expressing wickedness, God's goodness spared the human race in the family of Noah, his three sons, and their three wives, and his wife. The scripture says in Genesis 6-8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the grace of God stands upon the goodness of God, The goodness of God is a vital element of the glory of God, and our God is glorious because he is good, and he only is good, and he can only do good, and whatever he does is good, and he can't do anything that's not good, whether that's sending a flood or saving a sinner, whatever God does is good. Now, we can learn what good is by observing and by studying and by meditating upon the God of Scripture. Were he not good, there would be no grace. So grace is the expression of the goodness of God. All right, now, let's look at another word. Let's look at a word, soteria. I mentioned that to you a lot of times. But there it is on the board, soteria. That's a word that means safe. S A F E, safe, usually translated saved. And so the doctrine of salvation is called soteriology. You see that L O G Y? That's the word, that's the word for you get from logos, when it means word. And soteria means safe or saved. So soteriology is a word about salvation. Theology, theos, is God. Logos is word, so theology is a, the word of God, a word about God. You ever heard people say, I don't want any of that old theology. Well, if you, don't, if you teach the Bible, you're giving people theology. That's what theology is. It is a word from God. It is a word about God. And you have all these things. Hamartiology. You have hamartia, which is translated sin. So hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. Okay, Christology is the doctrine of Christ. So we're looking at soteriology, we're going to look at the grace of God, especially in light of soteriology, we're going to think about the grace of God soteriolo- uh, soteriologically <laughs> with, with regards to salvation, especially salvation as revealed in the Bible. Now, we know that all doctrine finds its essence and finds its fulfillment in the person and the word and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So every doctrine we study, you can see it and find it in its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, what greater display of the goodness of God can be found than in the Christ of the cross, or in the cross of the Christ? Behind the love of God is the goodness of God, and if it were not If God wasn't good, I'll just say it this way. If God were not good, then he never would have sent his son. And if he were not good, he would never call anyone to faith in his son. And if he were not good, he would never keep those secure who come to his son while continuously forgiving them. Because that's what he does when he saves us. He continuously forgives us. As we go through life, calling on him, looking to him, trusting in him, and confessing to him. If he were not good, after about the 10,000th time, he'd say, well, I'm through with fooling with you. I'm going to cast you off, and that's it. But he didn't do that. He, He is good, and because he is good, we are safe. That's what the word saved means. It means to be safe. But God is good in another sense, in a sense that we don't usually think of. He's so good that he will not do wrong. He is so good that he will not clear the guilty. He's so good that he will put men in hell before he will compromise his goodness. So now this is where we're going to jump in in Exodus chapter 33, and listen to a little conversation, enter into a little conversation between God and Moses. And I want you to listen and uh, observe this conversation as uh, Moses speaks to the Lord and the Lord speaks to Moses. Uh, Moses makes a request to see the glory of God. Exodus 33, verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18. He said... uh, Uh, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And you cannot see my face and live. There's a place by me, which is a rock. Of course, that rock represents Christ. And I'll put you in the rock. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And when I pass by, I'll cover you with my hand. And I'll take away my hand, verse 23, and you shall see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now I want you to look at verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And I don't know why, let's see. Let's look at chapter 31 for just a moment, because I intended to show you another passage, which apparently I've written down uh, in error. Let's see, Uh, Exodus chapter 31, uh, verse 18. God gave to Moses when he had made an end of communing with him, talking with him, upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, two tables of stone, written with the very finger of God. Now, I have... Let me see if I can check my my notes here. Uh verse 18 is uh let's see. Is maybe it's chapter uh well I don't know where it is, but I I've got it here in my in my notes. Let me just read it to you. I've written down the wrong uh the wrong verse, but this is what it says. It says that Moses said, "I beseech thee, show me thy glory." I have written down that that's Exodus thirty-three, eighteen, and that's not. It's probably thirty-two, eighteen, or thirty-four, eighteen. And the Lord said in verse nineteen, "Here it is." In verse nineteen, here's verse eighteen. It is. It is chapter thirty-three, verse eighteen. He said, "I beseech thee, show me thy glory." Exodus thirty-three, eighteen. That's Moses' request. And the Lord said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. So the, the goodness of God is the glory of God. The glory of God and the goodness of God are, inter, are intertwined. But if you'll notice here, he says, I will, verse 19, I will be gracious. So God is gracious, but his sovereignty overrides his grace. He said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the glory of God bound up in the goodness of God, but the goodness of God is limited and directed by the sovereignty of God. Now the people of Israel had built a golden calf. And Moses, when he discovered this, was so enraged that he threw down those two tablets. We just read that, where Moses was given two tablets written with the very finger of God. The finger of God wrote these ten words, these ten commandments. And when Moses came down off the mountain, he found that the people had persuaded his own brother to make a golden calf. And the people were partying and worshiping and saying, These be thy gods, O Israel. And Moses was so enraged that he threw down the two tablets which God had with his own finger written the Ten Commandments. Moses himself was a lawbreaker in the literal literal sense. Now, in Exodus 34, look in Exodus chapter 34 now. Exodus 34, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Hew out, or cut out, two tables of stones like the first ones. And I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which you broke. Okay? Which you broke. Now skip down to the fifth verse, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord is going to proclaim his own name. The Lord passed by before him, and this is what the Lord said. The Lord, the Lord God, first thing he says, is merciful. Then he says, gracious. Then he says, long-suffering. I mean, very patient. And he's abundant in goodness and truth. He keeps mercy for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But notice this, he will by no means clear the guilty. So look at all of these things he says here. Very important lesson for us to learn about the grace of God that stands upon the goodness of God. The goodness of God, this is our lesson tonight, the goodness of God will not be shown in any manner at the expense of the righteousness of God. So the G in grace stands for goodness. I've tried to show you that that's bound up in the glory of God. But the important lesson to learn at this juncture is that the goodness of God will never be shown at the expense of the righteousness of God. So whereas the G in grace is goodness, the R in grace is righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, we've got some more Hebrew words for you. In Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. All right. Now, that top word up there, it's a crazy-looking word. That's from the Hebrew, and it's pronounced "sadik," And that word means just in conduct and just in character. God said to Noah, I have seen you righteous. I've seen you just in conduct and just in character. The Bible says Noah found grace where? In the eyes of the Lord. It didn't say that God found grace in Noah. The grace was in God. You understand? It was grace showing his goodness to Noah. Noah was a sinner, but he wasn't involved in what the rest of them were uh, involved in. All right, then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we're talking about God's righteousness now, trying to find out what it means. The R in grace means righteousness, and his goodness cannot be shown at the expense of his righteousness. Okay, so righteous, when it said to Noah, you're righteous, has to do with conduct and character. Then in Genesis 15 and verse 6, that second word, not the top word, but the second word, the word in the middle, that word is pronounced set a call," And that word means just and truthfulness and vindication. You vindicate. God vindicated who? He vindicated Abraham. Genesis 15, 6 Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And that word righteousness is that middle word, set a call, okay? Now, Genesis 18, 25, remember when Abraham talked to the Lord, that bottom word up there, mispot, he talked to the Lord, and he said, now, you're going to destroy Sodom and tomorrow, what if there's 50 righteous people in there? Will you destroy the... City, would you spare the city for the fifty righteous? Remember that? And what if it's forty? What if it's thirty-five? It got down to ten. Okay, and this is what it says in Genesis 1825 that Abraham was bold enough to say to God, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's that bottom word, mitfot. It means to Render justice Won't God render justice? Won't He do the right thing? OK? Now we have another word in the Old Testament that we're concerned with a lot, and it's the word holiness, the word holiness. When God revealed himself to Ab- uh, to Moses in Genesis. Uh, uh, the book of Exodus, rather, he said to him, the place whereon you're standing is holy ground. Remember when God put the bush on fire and Moses saw the bush and went up close to the bush and he noticed that the bush wasn't burned up. It was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. And God spoke to him and said, take off your shoes. The ground upon which you are standing is holy. It is holy ground. And uh, then remember when Isaiah said he saw a vision of the Lord and he saw those seraphim, those angelic creatures, saying one to another, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Now that top word up there is, is the word kodesh, or kodesh it may be pronounced. I think the emphasis is on the first syllable, kodesh. And it means sec, sacred or hallowed. It means set-apartness. And I'll comment on that in a minute. It came from a, an older word, uh, kadash. And the word holy is a very difficult word uh, because it is, finds its origin in God himself. And what it means, it means... A set-apartness, it means it is the opposite of something that is common. It means something that is other. So God is other than anything else. There isn't only one God. He can't be compared to anything. You can't say God is like this and God is like that because there's only one God. So you can't compare him to anything. Well this word holy and holiness and sanctification in the New Testament, you have that middle word there, Argios. You really don't pronounce that H, it has a soft kind of sound, and it's translated holy, set apart, and separated. That last word, Hagiosmos, is in Hebrews twelve fourteen, follow peace with all men and holiness, without whence no man shall see the Lord. That's that bottom word. So those are three words, the top word from the Hebrew and the middle word and the last word from the Greek. And they're all translated by holiness, are set apart, or separated unto. Now, goodness then cannot be shown at the expense of righteousness because God is righteous and God is holy. So what we're saying is if righteousness or if goodness, if God's going to show his goodness, then righteousness has to be satisfied. All right, now, all right, so brother, so how in the world then could you say that God showed His goodness to Adam and Eve and people that lived in the Old Testament when they lived thousands of years? before Christ came into the world to satisfy the righteousness of God. Here's how. You know all those passages you read in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, when it talks about a Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world? That's how. Because God doesn't live in time, He lives in eternity. And whatever He has determined to do is as good as done, it is as good as already done. And if there hadn't been somebody... To answer to the righteousness of God, the goodness of God would never have been shown. If His goodness is to be shown, righteousness has to be satisfied. So it's righteous His righteousness is what frees the hand of his goodness. Okay, Now let's look at another element real quick. Is it right to show goodness to the guilty? Now, we we just read in Exodus 34, 7, that the Lord made one thing very clear to Moses. He said, I'm full of mercy, I'm full of goodness, I'll forgive iniquity, I'll forgive transgression, I'll forgive sin. But he said, I will by no means clear the guilty. Abraham, we just saw that uh, from Genesis 18, asked the Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked that be far from thee to do after this manner? To slay the righteous with the wicked and the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now God commanded in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 7, Do not slay the innocent and the righteous for I will not justify the wicked. So the question is, is it righteous to punish the innocent? No. It is not right to punish an innocent person, and it is not right to spare a guilty person, is it? So to put it another way, a righteous God can't have an unrighteous people. God has to find a way to have a righteous people if they're going to be in a righteous heaven that's governed by a righteous God. You understand where I'm taking you now? It's not right for the judge when he has a criminal, he's, he's killed 10 people, and the judge says, well, I believe in love, and I think love should prevail. And so I'm not going to put this man in an electric chair. I'm not even going to send him to prison because I want him to be an example and a demonstration of love. That would be an unjust thing. It's just as unjust when you send, send somebody to five lifetimes and they just have one. What they should do and what the scripture commands them to do is they should be executed. They should be executed according to the scripture. And the Lord promises the nation that will not execute the criminal will soon be executed themselves. Because the criminals and those who think like the criminals will take over. And uh, that nation will be going down the drain, which is where I think the United States is now. So it's not righteous, righteous, it's not right to punish the innocent. It's not right to spare the guilty. It's not right to punish an innocent person. It's not right to let a guilty person go free. So either God must become unrighteous or he must make an unrighteous people righteous. David said, the righteous Lord loves righteousness. Therefore, he will always do what is right He will always be against what is not right. Otherwise, if he wasn't, then the Lord himself would become unrighteous, and that is an impossibility. So we ask the question, can the sun refuse to shine? Can the moon hide itself? Can hell empty itself? If so, the goodness of God can be shown at the expense of his righteousness. But if the opposite of this is so, that the goodness of God cannot and will not be shown at the expense of his righteousness, we are at a spiritual roadblock. So we all agree from the beginning that the God of Scripture has shown himself to be a righteous God. When he told Adam and Eve, Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat, you'll surely die. When they ate, he didn't come back and say, now maybe you didn't hear me. Maybe you didn't understand. Let me make it clear this time. No, that's what we do. That's what we do. That's why criminals are let back out on the street 15 to 20 times until they finally kill somebody. That's what we do a lot of times with our children. We tell them one time, and then when they do it, we say, don't do it again. Tell them again, don't do it again. And after a while, they don't believe a thing you say. But when God said, in the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, that is exactly what happened, isn't it? He punished the, the, uh, the, the builders of the Tower of Babel. He destroyed the world with a flood. What does that tell us? He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. What message did that send? Well, the human race didn't get that message. And so he moved men to write down what kind of God he was. This is what we call the Bible. We have a written revelation from the mind of God so that it's very clear what kind of God we're dealing with. And he said in the Bible, this is who I am. This is what I am, and this is what I mean when I say I am holy. And he gave those Ten Commandments, those Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image of anything that's in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work six days and set aside one day for rest and worshiping me. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land whence the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his animal, his donkey, or anything that is thy neighbor's. What is he saying? He's saying, This is the kind of God I am. I am the only God. Worship me and nothing else. Don't make any images. I am a glorious God. I can't be compared with anything else you have ever seen or imagined. I forbid you to draw pictures and make images of me. I am above all my creation and my created creatures in power, knowledge, and wisdom. Therefore, I am to be held in respect. And reverence, don't speak of me or think of me without humility and reverence. Do not take my name in vain. Now, you might think your pastor is a a prude. You might might think I'm a Neanderthal, and I really, I'm sorry if that's what you think. But uh, when people are on these game shows or something else, all they can say is, Oh, my God, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Say something else. I have a friend, when he gets upset with it, he says, why don't you go to heaven? <laughs> well, you know what you thought he was going to say. <laughs> why don't you go to heaven? Well, why don't they say something else besides, oh, my God. You got a new house. You won $10. Oh, my God. That's taking the name of the Lord lightly. He's taking it in a vain way. He's using it in a vain way. And this is what he's dealing with in these Ten Commandments. I command you to honor your fathers and your mothers because they represent me to you. And to disobey them is to disobey me. To refuse to honor your father and mother is to refuse to honor me. I gave you life and I alone have the right to take it. You can only take life when it's according to my will. You can only spare life when it's according to my will. I forbid you to have more than one mate at a time. I forbid you to take forcibly what belongs to another, to steal. I forbid discontent with what I have given you. When you want something somebody else has got, you're not happy with what he's given you. I demand in word, thought, and deed what is true. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Always tell the truth. And you know, the Lord Jesus told us in the New Testament to what extent, let's just turn over and we'll end with this. To what extent this law of God went, the poor Pharisees and the Sadducees, Matthew chapter 4 and 5, chapter 5, the Pharisees thought that the law was limited to overt external outward conduct. Now, I am not denying, and I don't want anybody to think I am, I am not denying that there are degrees of sin. You break the law if you think about murdering somebody, but you do a worse thing if you go out and murder them. You understand what I'm saying? It is certainly worse to murder, actually murder a person, than it is to think about murdering them. But the law Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, In the Sermon on the Mount, the extent of the law when he says, You have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. You see, look at verse uh, 19. Well, verse 18. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall do and teach the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say unto you, verse 20. Now he's setting himself up here as the new lawgiver. Say, we're not under the law of Moses in the sense of our conduct and in the sense of earning righteousness. But, and I want to make this clear, there's not one thing that the Lord tells us to do or forbids us from doing that's not contained in the law. It's still wrong to steal, still wrong to kill, still wrong to covet, It's still wrong to do all these other things. It's just we're not under that as a standard of conduct. We're under Christ. Christ is our new lawgiver, not Moses. You understand me? So he says, I say unto you, verse 20, verse 21, you have heard that it's been said by them of old time. Now let me tell you what that phrase means. That means the Jews interpreted Moses as saying and teaching certain things. You've heard it's been taught, you shall not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. I say unto you, verse 22. If you're even angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Rakah shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. He said, if you're even angry for a wrong cause, you've broken that commandment. Okay? He goes on through, for example, Verse 28. Verse 27, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, it's not the same thing as going out and committing adultery, but it means you're guilty before God. But a worse sin would be to go out and to do that, that even that can be forgiven under the blood of Christ. Then he says in verse 31, it has been said whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement, but I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her that is divorced commits adultery. You see, he says that all of these laws go to the thoughts and intents of the heart. You've been told, verse 33, don't swear yourself, but perform your oaths. I say to you, don't swear at all. Verse 34, neither by heaven, it's God's throne, not by the earth, it's his footstool, not by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king, neither shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. If you can't do something simple like turn a hair white or black, what are you doing swearing by saying, if so and so and so and so, I'll do it. You don't know, you might have a heart attack. So he, he, he says, I'm the new lawgiver. Verse 38, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. I say unto you, Do not resist evil. Whoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue you at the law, take take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. Verse 43, You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Uh, Who's the only person that's ever done that perfectly? This doesn't let us off the hook, but the only person that's ever done that perfectly is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible for you to love your enemies and pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute except by the grace of God. By the grace of God. So God gave us this law to show us how far short we fall of his standard of righteousness. All right, finally, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Probably every theological question in the Bible is answered somewhere in Romans, very wonderful theological book, a doctrinal book. So the the G in grace is goodness. The R in grace points us to the righteousness of God. How righteous is God? How righteous is God? He is so righteous that he will not take any of us to heaven unless we are as righteous as he is. He will not take us to heaven unless we are forgiven just as if we had never sinned. This, of course, means that we have to have a substitute. That's why we thank God for the great doctrine of imputation where Jesus Christ takes our place and gives to us everything he has earned. He takes our sins. Our sins are imputed to him, charged to his account, and his righteousness is imputed or charged to our account. So when Christ died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose again, we rose again. And now we sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 4 and verse 6. When we were without strength. That's wrong, isn't it? My goodness, I must have been asleep when I made these notes. Let's see. Um... Where is it? Anybody know where it is? Chapter four. Huh? huh? Chapter, four. Chapter 4. All right. What verse, Brother Todd? Verse six. All right. Verse 6. I'm looking at the wrong one. Even as D- David describes the right, the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So what is this? This is what I've been trying to describe. This is the switching of roles. This is Christ becoming our substitute. And we are accepted of the Father as though we are his only begotten son without sin and as righteous as he is. That's the only way we can go to heaven. As I've said many times here, When we had the Christian school, I used to ask the boys and girls, how good do you have to be to go to heaven? And then I would tell them, you have to be as good as God. And the only way to be as good as God is if you have the righteousness of Christ upon you. That is the R in grace. So let me rehearse this for you. God desired to show goodness to us, but his goodness could not be shown until his righteousness is satisfied. So that's the G and the R, the goodness and the righteousness. Next time, God willing, we'll look at the A, which is atonement, atonement. May the Lord add his blessings on the teaching of his word. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your goodness that you found a way to be just and to justify The fallen sons and daughters of Adam who believe in your son. Just as you declared Abraham righteous, that he believed you, and so we receive that word from you, that we are righteous as we stand in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, we are still sinners, we still fall short, we still have to come daily confessing our sins to you. But Lord, we are thankful for this great and wonderful doctrine, of imputation by which the righteousness of the righteous Son of God is charged to our account and that we stand before you accepted in the beloved. We thank you for this good news through Christ our Lord that you've shown to us in your sovereign grace. And we thank you and praise you, ask you to bless us as we part, in his name, for his sake, amen. All right, thank you.